If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. A Woman's Honor, a dark historical romance novel by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 6. Yule came and went, and Delina made dolls for the girls who visited her every day, and gloves for the little boys. In return they gave her strange gifts of wilted flowers and bone knives. She also made a gown for Maggie to replace the only dress the woman owned, and provided her with pen and ink so she could begin drawing pictures of the herbs she had grown in her garden. At the bottom of each image Eleanor would write how the plant was to be grown, prepared and used. She planned to give the book to her father, who had made similar books for himself in the past. Perhaps one day he would forgive her for being such a naive little fool. On Christmas Eve Alan appeared to invite her to the festivities in the Great Hall, but she declined to participate. This was not a year for celebration or a time to be joyful. Each hour she felt more longing for home and those she had left behind. Two days after Christmas, the Duke came to give her his gift. Tomorrow we ride to visit your parents. He spoke while standing on the ladder. It has been weeks since they had spoken privately. She rarely left her tower. He never came to her room. Eleanor couldn't stop the smile that flew to her face. No matter how many horrible memories filled her mind from her last hours at home, she knew she would be happier there. Better to grieve with people who loved her than with strangers who wished her dead. It will take two days to travel there and you will have to ride. We have no litter to carry you and no time to construct one. Do you have warm clothes to wear? I have what you have given me, if you could find me some clean breeches, a light jerkin, and a pair of boots to fit. I might make do. That would not be seemly. My wife cannot dress as a man. Eleanor shook her head in disbelief. Of all the affronts the last few months had offered to her dignity and station, dressing like a man would be least among them. Also, she was not in fact his wife. But she would appease him so he did not decide to cancel the visit. I shall wear them under my clothes for warmth. I will have some things sent up to you. We will leave at first light. Thank you. You never owe me thanks, my lady. Before a startled Eleanor could think of a reply, the Duke was gone. The next morning Eleanor and the Duke set out with a dozen soldiers, including Alan and James. She wore the breeches, boots, and jerkin he had given her under her dress. The Duke had also provided her with the kind of heavy hooded leather cloak a wealthy young lord might wear. It was fully lined with both wool and fur. The result was bulky but very warm. She rode astride though it would have been more correct for her to sit a horse with one of the men. The duke, moving into place beside her said. I am surprised that you ride so well. If you recall, my lord, I had four brothers once. I found learning to ride as well as they a matter of survival. Eleanor looked over at him, atop his massive horse, dressed in leather armor and wrapped in a heavy dark cloak that enveloped him from head to toe. He looked every inch a warrior. A legend in the making. Care to race? She asked, allowing a note of merriment to enter her voice. She had the smaller horse but she was very light. She could fly through these bare trees, 
he and his charger, very powerful but far too heavy in this sodden, snow-covered soil, would struggle to catch her. If you attempt such a thing, I shall knock you off your horse. He said amiably. I have no desire to chase you through the woods. Eleanor smiled by way of reply. There was a thoughtful pause and he spoke again. Shall we play a game tonight? She knew he referred to chess rather than the game of verbal challenges they played every time they spoke. She shrugged. I think not. Since you are a cheat, my lord. Did you not win? Is that not what counts? I am told you allowed me to win which makes my victory meaningless. And I have no idea why. I might have won in any case, my lord, had we played an honest game. Why did you want me to think you stupid? Why did we play if not to find the true winner? There are too many good reasons to count. The duke said as his smile faded. Mostly it was a way to know you better. You learned something by letting me win? The duke rode in silence for a long moment, then he said. The game is just another form of combat, my lady. All strategy, and no bloodshed. I've spent a lifetime fighting. Days, weeks, months, years, all piled one atop the other until I fear it is the only thing I can do well. Watching you play made you a part of a world I fully understand. Eleanor contemplated his words, sensing the heavy burden of his years at war. What would it be like to never have a home, never to be at peace, and never to be able to build? It would be a bleak life, she thought. A life among the gravestones. So, then, what did you learn about me through your losses? She asked curiously. He looked at her, shook his head. Perhaps I will tell you another day. His words made her angry. It was like a cat with a mouse. She was in fact his prisoner. And yet still he thought to tease and play coy with her? It was disrespectful. When shall that be, my lord? When I am in a nunnery? Will you stop by to see me in my habit, making my prayers, lost among the sisters? Will you come and tell me then what you learned by letting me win at chess? She shook her head and looked forward. I will hardly care what you think of me in those days, my lord. I will be dead to this world. He seemed startled by her fierce response. I like to think you will be happy in the cloister, my lady. I see you with your letters and learning. You will be safe, protected by the church, never in danger of another siege, need never endure another loss. Eleanor turned to look at him. The hundred and one responses that flew to her lips, the rage and defiance that welled up within her, all seemed too small, too petty, to voice. When words finally did come, she couldn't look at him and say them. Yes, my lord, when you have cut off my hands I need never again fear burning my fingers. She turned her horse aside and dropped back a dozen feet to ride alone. How could she explain to a man who had only ever destroyed that she didn't want a living death behind cloister walls? Why on earth would he think she could be happy with everything she cared about stripped away? That night the duke and his men made camp shortly after sundown. The long night stretched ahead of them like a vast desert. Though snow covered the trees and ground around them in vast patches, the skies were clear which meant no new snow would fall. It would just be incredibly cold. Like the rest of the company, Eleanor wrapped herself in her cloak, and settled herself before one of the three campfires. Looking around the quiet woods, she wondered how far they were from the glen where the duke's men had camped on the day he had taken her from her home. The memory brought back a moment of deep despair and grief beyond knowing. How long would it be before she could think of the past without unutterable sorrow? She noted the duke's men had settled themselves around the remaining two campfires, leaving her to eat alone. 
She wondered if it was because they disdained her company or if it were due to the elevated status she supposedly enjoyed. Either way, it seemed she would spend another evening in solitude. As she thought this, she saw the Duke leave one of the fires to approach her. Time to eat, said the Duke, settling on the same long log she rested on. In his hands he held food and wine in a skin. We have salt meat and bread, and some ale to wash it down with. He said as he handed her a share of the items. Eleanor took the food, and was glad of it. She also admitted to herself that she welcomed his company. We should reach your father's kit tomorrow afternoon before sundown. We are making better time through these woods than we did the last time we traveled through. Eleanor nodded her understanding. How comfortable he was with the past. How she wished she could talk of it so easily. She sought for a topic of conversation. What could they discuss that would not brook an argument between prisoner and jailer yet another time? Will you marry that girl when I am gone? She asked, surprising even herself. What girl? said the Duke, mystified. The dark one I saw you with. The Duke said nothing for a long moment, then turned his attention back to his food. I do not want to talk about this with you. If you love her, there is no shame in saying that. She is beautiful. A good worker. She does not have lands of her own to bring as dowry, but you will have mine. The Duke shook his head in consternation. Do you think that is what I want in a wife? A good worker? Well, what do you want? Will you return to London to find your bride? You may have been born on the wrong side of the blanket, but you are a duke in your own right now. Many would have you I suppose. But it is a hard life here. Someone from court might not be happy many leagues from everyone she ever knew. The duke's response was measured. My lady, I do not want to leave you by this fire alone, but I will not discuss this with you. Eleanor studied him, saw that he was very grim. He did not meet her eyes as she looked at him. Was it shame she saw? Was it something else? Why did she deign to make conversation with this criminal? This cur who cared not who he used or who he killed? She stood. We need never speak again on my account, my lord. She continued to stare at him for a long moment, then abandoned the food he had offered her and moved to the far side of the fire. She settled herself tailor fashion in front of the flames and cast her mind into them, blotting him out along with the cult. As she did so many nights, she would leave the whole world behind for the hell inside the fire, an uneven terrain where devils danced from peak to peak. It cannot be that you love me. Eleanor found words on her lips that seemed to say themselves. What? My lord. I loathe you. You must take my lack of fear and civil words for friendship or compassion. I would do you great harm if I could, and I would rather die than have you for a husband. We are back to dying again? He asked. As I am forced to choose between the convent and you, my lord, the sisters will have a new novice. The duke stood. Let us be clear, once and for all, my lord. You are a murderer, thief, and coward. You came to my lands, waged war, murdered my people. My brother. Your men are little more than animals. They cannot create. They only destroy. Can you name one truly good thing you or your men have ever done? I am sure you cannot. Saying the words felt like slamming a door in her heart. It was the murder of something inside her that believed in hope, mercy, forgiveness and redemption. In this no man's land between the home she had been born into and the keep he had taken her to, the distinctions were very sharp. There was before and after, right and wrong, good and evil. The duke said, head lowered. Do you remember that I did not kill you and your family? I easily could have. Because it served you. 
because murdering us before taking hold of our lands would make your appeal to the king to keep them unpalatable. We have done nothing so horrible in this life, my lord, that we deserve you as a punishment. You are a walking obscenity. She met his eyes then, and she saw the insult strike home. They rode into Eleanor's keep the next day as the duke had predicted. As they crossed the drawbridge her eyes rose to the castle gate where her brother's head had hung on a pike. She could still see it there in her imagination, overlooking her wedding vows. There were far more men in the courtyard than she would have expected, and when she dismounted she didn't recognize any of the stable boys. Were these the duke's men? Her mother met her at the door to the great hall, and she entered to find that an effort had been made to mark her arrival as a joyful occasion. Boughs of evergreen hung from the peat walls, and candles burned in the sconces. She could see that places for a dinner were being laid, and her mother had even put out the fine linen table coverings and silver candles for the men who had last come here to wage war. I am so glad to have you home my daughter. We have missed you every minute. Said her mother, pulling her close. Eleanor could not speak for a moment, so overwhelmed was she with emotion. How long had she waited to hear kind words? How could she ever bear to part from here again? Where is my father? Eleanor managed to ask. She had apologies to make, forgiveness to ask. Her father had been right about the world they lived in, the dangers they faced. She and her brother had been impossibly arrogant, thinking they could play tit for tat with monsters who made war for a living. When Eleanor looked up at her mother, she saw that her face had fallen. He is in his study. She said. He rarely leaves there now that Alec has come. Your father lives in his papers. Eleanor ran up the steps leaving her mother and the Duke's party in the hall. She found her father in his study, sitting with one of his great books open upon his desk. Without a word she ran to him, and embraced him. She knelt beside him. She lay her head on his knee. I am so sorry father. You were right to do as you did. We never knew the evil of this world. Eric and I have destroyed all you built. His hand brushed softly across her hair, fell to her cheek where it lingered. Hush, my dear. It was not your fault. It was entirely mine. No. She said, looking up. With the right allies we would have prevailed. Her father's voice sounded both sorrowful and distant, as if he was remembering something from a dream. But we will set things right. Eleanor rose to her feet. We will set them as right as we can. Eleanor told her father, taking his frail hand in both of her own. She saw a single tear slip down his bemused face, and she left the room before she too began to cry. Without waiting for the duke to find her, she explored the castle. The rooms were once again whole, clean, and well-ordered. Her memory gave her the laughter of her brothers, their shouts of joy in the halls, their faces in the bedrooms. They also showed her scenes of blood, corpses piled one atop the other, pitch, mud, and excrement from the terrible days of the siege. All times seemed to come together into a single moment, at once more beautiful and more horrifying than anything she had ever known before. Her parents' dreams had turned to nightmares in this keep. Something had been broken that could never be restored. A maid told Eleanor where Eric had been buried and she went to the chapel. The stone over his grave looked newer and more roughly hewn than those of the older graves, but in a few decades she knew it would be smooth with old grief and forgotten misery. One day, if the nuns permitted, she might lie here as well, allowed to spend eternity in the home where she had been happiest. She lay beside the stone, and put her hand upon it. It was there that the Duke found her. Lord Armstrong is here. The Duke said, 
as if asking her to make a reckoning for it. Is he? Why? Eleanor asked without sitting up. I came to ask you that. He replied. You said you would not call this man a friend. You said he did not come here often. Yet he is here now. Can you explain why he might have come? I suppose my parents make him welcome as they make you welcome. They are hardly in a position to refuse anything to anyone are they my lord? I do not like this strange happenstance. He said. If you know something you are not telling me, if you are hiding something, be assured it is a mistake I will make you pay for. You make me pay for everyone's mistakes, do you not my lord? She said, closing her eyes. Eleanor heard the duke leave the chapel, and she began to pray for the soul of her brother. Lord Armstrong sat on her father's right at the high table during the evening feast. Though the two men spoke very little to one another, Eleanor sensed a bond had grown between them in the last months. Armstrong was tall, patrician, balding, with a snow-white beard and long moustache. Though not young, he managed to seem both strong and imposing. He had once fought alongside the king's grandfather and had come to these warring lands, like the duke, as a soldier assigned to defend the border. These days he looked like the men Eleanor imagined must be beside the king, those always whispering secrets and spinning plots that accounted for the fall of others. When Armstrong had offered to marry her, more than a year ago, all she could think about was how old he was, how his hands and beard and skin would feel against hers. At the time the thought had made her physically ill. Now, she felt numb to the world and its many insults. After all the indignities she had suffered, being Armstrong's wife paled in comparison. Eleanor and the Duke sat to her father's left, while her mother sat opposite her father. More than seventy soldiers and servants who shared the belated Yule dinner with them feasted at lower tables. As Eleanor stared out at them she realized she could not identify one face in ten. She couldn't recognize any of the men in her father's livery. She noted that Lord Armstrong also had an escort of his own with him. Four big burly men who shared a table with Alan and James and who watched them with sharp eyes. For his part, seated beside her, the Duke said hardly a word throughout dinner. His face was pale, his eyes dark, and he continuously assessed the room just as she did. She knew he sensed the danger in this place, and she knew it was right that he should. It had all the hallmarks of a trap. So when she had eaten her fill, and the mummers were making merry, and the Duke had risen to confer with Alan and James and then the rest of his men, she slipped away. She was glad to leave the crucible the Great Hall had become. She was unaware the duke had followed her until, as she stepped into the courtyard through the door nearest the kitchens, he put a hand on her arm. And where do you go my lady? I left my father's gift in my saddlebag. The book you and the witch wrote? If you and your men continue to call her a witch she will be burnt. Eleanor said dispassionately. I will come with you my lady, this is no night to wander alone. Said the duke. He followed her out into the courtyard and together they crossed through the moonlight into the shadow of the stables. There were only a few torches lit here along the long line of stalls and it took her several minutes to find where her saddle had been placed. She searched the bags attached to it and found the loose pages of the makeshift book she had created. When she turned to show the book to the duke, she found him missing. She began to search the stable for him, but within a few turns she encountered her father instead. My dear. You must come with me. He said gently. Where is the Duke? Eleanor asked, feeling alarm begin to pierce the veil of numbness she had been living in since the previous night. It occurred to her that she loathed the Duke but she did not want to see him harmed. 
She would not want to know he had died because a blade had pierced his chest or slit his throat. She might be able to kill him herself, but she would not want another to deliver the blow. She knew that made no sense, but she felt it nevertheless. Come. Her father said, taking her arm. His touch was gentle but insistent. She went with him, peering into the darkness for any sign of the duke. Was her father taking her to him? To Eleanor's surprise her father led her up the back stairs to his study. There she found Lord Armstrong and her mother waiting. My dear. Said Lord Armstrong with a bow. His blue eyes were as pale and cold as a winter sky. We could not speak freely before, but it does my heart good to see you so well. Thank you. Said Eleanor, frightened by this strange secret meeting while the rest of the keep feasted below. We have not much time, and so I must be. Indelicate. Lord Armstrong moved toward Eleanor. She noticed that his square shoulders and strong legs bespoke the strength of a much younger man. It was easy to see that he had been a soldier once. And despite the lines in his face and the white in his hair, it was clear that he was one still. Am I right in believing your marriage to the Duke is not a true marriage? Are you in fact his wife? Eleanor's heart started to pound in her chest. So this was to be the way of things. The Duke's accursed bargain with her was about to be unmade. Have I not taken vows, my lord? But have you ever lain with him? Has he taken you to bed? Lord Armstrong asked. Why do you want to know? Eleanor asked, trying to still the shaking of her hands by pressing them together. Because of the pre-contract, said her father. He was glassy-eyed, smiling, as he stood surrounded by his shelves of books. He looked on Eleanor adoringly. Eleanor found herself thinking that her father grandson of the man to whom this estate had been granted, should never have ruled here. His grandfather had been a warrior, his father a staunch workman like Defender, his older a brother a man like them. But her father had been bound for the church until his brother died. He had come here a young man with noble ideas and much learning, but not the strength required to hold these territories against men of war. Her father said. You were betrothed to Lord Armstrong in the spring, my daughter. You didn't tell the Duke this before he wed me, said Eleanor. She could hear the loving lie in her father's voice. He was selling his soul to undo what had been done to her. He and her mother would have to swear, as she would, that there had been a pre-contract. They would take an oath that they lied to the Duke. Because he would never have stopped the killing if I had not given him to you. But there was a pre-contract and you knew. You rejected him because you knew. By God's grace the Duke lied about bedding you. And now you are free to marry Lord Armstrong, said her father. Eleanor looked to her mother for confirmation, but saw only fear in her eyes. I saw no contract. It was written between your father and I, after you sent your rejection. We decided that despite your wishes, we should unite our lands through marriage. Sign this. It is your statement that you are still a maid, that you withheld yourself from your marriage because you were sworn to me. I will send it with your father's confession he lied to the duke to save your life and the lives of others here. I will also send our marriage contract. You must marry Lord Armstrong as you were meant to. Then all will be undone. Said her father. Eleanor stood before these two madmen, blood pounding in her ears, mind whirling with indecision. What on earth should she do? The idea of never having to return to the duke's castle of perhaps being able to come home whenever she wished, was too wonderful to be believed. The notion that she might escape the convent, perhaps marry, have children, grow old in her own home was all but unimaginable. 
She did not want Lord Armstrong as a husband, but when compared to perpetual virtue and loneliness as a bride of Christ, was he not an acceptable alternative? But the horror of rekindling this war was unthinkable. So many had died, and so many more would fall if she agreed to this plan. It was treacherous to consider breaking her promise to the Duke. He had made her a devil's bargain but she had accepted it. She knew he would not be able to hold his estates against an assault by Lord Armstrong. His army, his rations, his people were all exhausted. Yet was not the Duke's every act one of treachery? A dishonorable peace made with her body as the sacrifice? Her family's land stolen? Why had he refused to make her a true marriage? Why had he kept her virgin when he could have settled things as they should have been settled? Had he thought himself so much stronger? So much superior to her? Eleanor took up the pen almost before she knew it. Her hand, of its own volition, wrote her name on the document declaring her marriage a lie. She signed a second copy for her father. When she was done, she wiped her hands on her dress like Herod trying to wash away the blood of Christ. She had just signed a document would almost certainly cost the Duke his estate. He and she were well and truly enemies now. Now, my lady, we must depart. We are not safe in this place. Said Lord Armstrong. Go, my dear. Your father and I will make our own way. Said her mother, urgently. Yes. Go now with a father's blessing. Said her father. No. You must come with me. Said Eleanor. She could not leave them here alone to face the Duke's wrath. We cannot ride. Go Eleanor. Trust God to protect us. Eleanor heard the fear in her mother's voice. She watched Lord Armstrong fold one of the documents she had signed and place it under his shirt, close to his skin. When he took her by the arm and led her out the door into the hall, she did not protest. In another moment they were striding down the servant's stair. She noted that the four burly men joined them as they descended to the first floor. They must have been guarding Lord Armstrong's escape. Where is the Duke? Have you found him yet? The Duke demanded without stopping. We cannot find him, my lord. Neither he nor his men. In the stables she slipped away from them and went to her horse. In a moment she had it saddled and ready to ride. Armstrong and his men looked surprised when she appeared, riding astride, stripped of the dress and overgown that covered her jerkin and leggings. She was past caring for anyone's opinion but her own and she refused to be captured because she could not keep her seat or because her gown caught on a branch. She was shaking with cold as Armstrong and his four guards crept out of the stables, through the yard, and past the unguarded gate. Once over the bridge and onto the road that ran outside, Armstrong and his men beat their horses into a gallop. Eleanor followed suit. To her surprise she ended up leading the pack. As she had thought earlier, she was so light on her horse that she flew over the wet ground while they fought with the mud. Eleanor knew from the start that they were doomed. The ride had all the characteristics of a nightmare. The moon was high, and she and her new entourage rode like the demons of hell were chasing them. Though she could not see or hear the Duke's pursuit, she could feel him coming. He had Alan and James with him. He would have sent the rest of his men galloping for their keep. The Duke would have his full revenge before the end of this dark night. He was not a man who would let it wait for another time. So it was, when they had been riding for no more than an hour, she heard the Duke's pursuit with a mixture of true terror and relief. At first she heard just an occasional call, or an extra hoofbeat carried on the wind. But soon the sound of their pursuers became a thunder. She did not dare to look back but raced along the road, knowing minute by minute that she was helping him catch her. She could not win on a straightaway against the Duke's massive charger. 
Even in the mud, the horse was so much more powerful, so much larger, it would be faster. Could Armstrong and his men protect her? Should she race off into the woods? Could she lose herself in the trees and find Armstrong again later? When she heard the first man fall hard from his horse, she looked behind her, almost colliding with Lord Armstrong himself. To her surprise her would-be husband did not stop, but rode past her, driving onward. Behind him she saw his four men were engaging the Duke, Alan and James on the ground. Horror washed over her. Though she had seen the carnage after a battle, she had never witnessed mortal combat. The Duke had knocked the first man off his horse. Eleanor saw him drive a blade down through his torso and drag it forward. It split the man from neck to gut. His victim's blood was black in the moonlight. The Duke then turned and ran his blade through one of the two men James was fighting. James lopped the head off the other with one long stroke. It rolled along the snowy ground until it fell into a little creek. The last man was served by Alan. In a single lightning move he parried the man's long blade with his own, then drove a dagger down into his chest. The man crumpled into a heap. The Duke mounted his horse in a single fluid motion and turned his attention to Eleanor. She was still riding down the road Armstrong had travelled. Shocked into decision she turned her horse into the woods, driving it through the narrowest gaps between the trees, headed toward a dense stand of evergreens she could see down and to her left. As she raced through a moonlit clearing toward them she was wrenched off her horse and thrown hard to the snowy ground. From her back, several inches deep in a snowy drift, she watched her horse canter off riderless. She looked up to find the Duke, still mounted, staring down at her. He seemed utterly relaxed, as if this murder and mayhem were entirely his element. As if you were born here. Moments ago she had seen him kill two men. He had executed them as if they were dummies in a tilting yard. No hesitation. Just death delivered smoothly, effortlessly, as if this were all he was born to do. He looked down at her with a complete lack of emotion. Well? You are not my husband. She said from the snow. So I read. He replied as he removed the document she had left with her father from his shirt. I would say a pre-contract, lack of consummation, and coerced wedding vows should be sufficient to have a farce of a marriage annulled. In fact, I could not have asked for better. Eleanor said nothing. Get up. Unless you truly want to die here. He said the words as if he were instructing her to pass the salt at dinner. Since Eleanor did not want to die precisely at this moment she rolled onto her side, then climbed to her feet. Her head was spinning, her back ached, and now that she was no longer riding it was suddenly very cold. The Duke held out his hand. With a sense of hopelessness, she held up her own. In one swift movement he pulled her up onto his horse in front of him. She rode side saddle, nestled against his back, one of his arms wrapped like a loose band of fire across her belly and hips. His other hand used the reins to guide the horse. He walked them forward, deeper into the woods she had hoped to hide in. Shall I tell you what I learned when we played the game of kings, idiot girl? I learned you are headstrong, rash, and will choose self-sacrifice time and time and time again. The Duke said. I could put a hundred opportunities on the board for you to make a better choice, one that would let you play longer or give you a better position, and you would force on us both a painful trade. You will have an easy answer rather than the right answer each and every time. You never let us play a real game so, in truth. You have no idea how well I play. Eleanor said, heart thudding with the heat and strength of him behind her. She fought the urge to submit to him. He was not omniscient. Not all-powerful. 
She was not an idiot girl but a formidable enemy. She had struck him a terrible blow. Be aware. I am angry enough to drop you to the ground and sever your head from your shoulders. He said, ambling through the trees down the wooded hill. His voice was conversational. James lost a brother and I lost a son at your keep. Those were the dead you rode with. I did not want to marry a woman I had every reason to hate. You killed my brother. Was I supposed to tally your dead as well? Eleanor said doggedly. She hadn't known who she rode with. No one had ever told her. Was she supposed to guess who they had lost? To beg forgiveness that their attack had cost them as much as it cost her? Still, hearing that the Duke had lost a son. What an imaginable grief. What a gulf had separated them on that fateful day. No wonder James had always hated her. You were a token in the battle. A hostage. I found you a little noble, a little mad, because you would not be broken, and would not be reasoned with. I'd thought to set you aside like a child, sending you to the nuns where you would be safe. I was being merciful. They were approaching a clearing. The charred remains of a burned-out house stood black against the snow. But I find you are as rotten as the rest of us, my lady. And no more deserving than I to be spared the great evil you have wrought. I did not begin this war. Said Eleanor. Nor did Mary or any of the children of my keep. But, in a few days, weak as we are, they will watch their fathers killed, their mothers raped, and will likely die as well. Armstrong will not wait till the spring. He will not wait a week, in assembling his campaign. He will take us now in an effort to reclaim you and to seize all my lands along with yours. Henry cares only for who can hold this border. He cares not for you, or I, or your father, or for anyone else. He cares only for this land. He had reached the clearing and they stared into the shattered one-room house. One of its walls was missing, the roof caving in. The remains of a bed lay inside. Eleanor studied the ruin as she spoke. You lay all these miseries at my door? No. The fault is mine. I should have taken you at your father's keep. I've no stomach for rape and I thought a marriage born in blood beneath me. But I see now this was always my fate. He dropped to the ground and pulled her down with him. He held her close as he looped the reins of his horse over a low branch, then he half walked her, half pulled her, into the meager shelter. He turned her to face him, standing between her and escape. I think you did not know Armstrong would be at your father's keep. I think you agreed to his plan rashly, to settle our score. I think it is only dawning on you that I will not be the only one to die. That what you have done will kill many you care for, most who have done nothing at all to harm you. Now I will take you to wife, my lady, for we both know you are no better than I. Eleanor stared at him. Take off your clothes as you did the night you offered to sleep with all the men in my army. She shook her head, trying to make sense of all his words. Are you afraid of a single man? Where is your courage now, my little soldier? His back was to the open wall of the house, moonlight lit him from behind. She remembered when she had first seen him thus. He had been watching her from the end of the cart that held his dead son. She had said his dead were the only men in his army fit to ride with her. Show me yourself as you did when you took a bath before me and my men, rising from my copper bath like a silver wraith. She shook her head again. Her heart had begun to pound. If the Duke took her, would she remain his wife? The document she had signed said she was forsworn to Armstrong, but it had been a lie, and she had made no vows to him. Had this all been a mistake? Could it be undone? Come, let me see you naked like some white witch in the moonlight. He waited. When she made no move he spoke softly. My lady, if you force me to undress you, I swear I will not do it gently. 
Eleanor lowered her head and unlaced the jerkin she wore. She pulled it off, and the moonlight painted her body and hair in silver. She untied the breeches, pulled off the boots, stood before him nude on the frozen planks of the broken house. The cold burned her skin and she felt the heat rushing from her body, seeping out through her pores. He approached, pulled her into a tight embrace. Where he touched, her body caught fire. She felt his hands follow the swell of her hips, the curve of her buttocks. He removed his long riding cape and it flew around her shoulders, a notion of fur, heat, and the human smell of him. He swept her up and carried her to the broken bed. A long moment after the act was done, he rose, leaving her wrapped in his cloak and still shuddering from the desire he had stirred in her. He righted his clothing and then looked down on her, his face unreadable. It was a mistake not to find a way to do that long ago. I had no notion that you would enjoy it. I have been wrong about a great many things. Eleanor struggled into a seated position, still covered in the cloak. She wrapped her arms around her knees. She too had been wrong about so much. It was starting to dawn on her that perhaps neither she nor the Duke were anything but fools who had no business affecting so many other lives. If it weren't for all the people that were going to die, I might admit that I much prefer things as they are now. Half my keep loathes you and the rest want you dead. I have no doubt that once your Olin Armstrong's plot is widely known, everyone will want you hung except those children you have persuaded to love you. But there is a fierceness in you that suits me. I would far rather be your whore than a ghost in your castle she said, finally finding words to speak her mind. Well you are neither now. You are my wife. Much good may it do you. I do have honor, my lord. It can be offended. Like any man I make good on my debts. I fight for what I want. I seek what I am due. That should not surprise anyone. Least of all you. Why does anyone believe I am a lesser creature because I was born with a womb? Are our mothers so different from our fathers? Since I never had either. I cannot tell you. The Duke offered her a hand. She ignored it, slipped out from under his cloak, and walked the few feet required to retrieve her clothes. As she dressed he watched her. It dawns on me that nothing is what it seems. He said, watching her body disappear in the clothes of a man. When she was dressed she turned to him. Shall we ride, my lord? It was time, Eleanor found herself thinking, to accept her fate. No one had come to this time unscathed, unbeaten, unfrightened, or whole. No one except Armstrong seemed well positioned for the battle they were in. She was no more or less lucky than any of the people who were likely to die in the next few days, and she was far more deserving of death than some. It was time she looked forward rather than within. A Woman's Honor by Andrea Stewart Voice Recording Copyright 2019 by Nancy Fulton all rights reserved. Music by Pavel Kanzenkov licensed from Pond 5. For more daring love stories, please visit dark-romance.com.